Before I uh, jump into the text, I just want to reiterate what Scott said, which is, man, happy Father's Day. Could we, could we just get the fathers to stand? Any, any father in the room? I just want to, I know this isn't normal, but I'm not normal, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah, give him a hand. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, and I know that there are even some fathers here that haven't stood, and, and I'm thinking of you now and praying for you here in my heart. Um, and uh, I, I just want to say that we appreciate you. We love you more than we can say. And, uh, you know, Mother's Day is a bigger deal in our culture, um, partly because I feel like, well, I was going to say every day is Mother's Day. Um, that might not be true. Um, Every day should be Mother's Day, and we all kind of feel that. Mom is the first on the scene. Mom, you know, your mom is just the best, right? I mean, there's no other way to say it. Nobody loves you quite like mom loves you. But partly for that reason, I think fathers get overlooked. Um, And I think from the scriptural perspective, as Chris has sort of said in some of his prayers even, like the father is the most fundamental thing in the universe. Um, God has a, a love that is a motherly love for us, but God, and that's where mothers get their tenderness and their compassion. Jesus said, he looked out over his people on a hilltop overlooking Jerusalem, and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He was weeping, and he said, how often have I longed to gather you like a hen gathers chicks to herself? So that kind of love comes from God himself, but God's not a mother. God's a father. And fathers image God in a way nobody else can. And there's a real crisis of fatherhood in our culture. And I just want to um, bless you as fathers in particular. And I actually want to pray for you right now. Um, Lord, I just bless our fathers. And I thank you that they are your image bearers in a way that no one else is um, in a special way. And Lord, I pray that you would give us strong fathers, that you would make us strong fathers by making us weak, men who are like children with you, who are your children, who look to you for everything, and who are humble and contrite of spirit, men who serve their wives, who serve you first and love you first, and then serve and love their wives next, and wash them with the water of your word, men who are full of your Holy Spirit and full of faith, and who love your word, who are men of courage and who stand when everyone else is falling away. Men who lay their lives down for the weak, men who love their children, men who love others who are not their own and bring them into their homes. We bless these men. We pray that you make them more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's my Father's Day stump speech. Um, We're so glad for you fathers, and for those of you that will be fathers. Um. I'm thinking about Orlando this morning because we all are and we all have been this week. And I'm just thinking about what a perfect antithesis Orlando is to what we see here in this, in this text in Jonah. In Orlando, we have a guy who's hate-filled who walks into the midst of a people whom he hates and who guns them down. And here in this text, we have... Um, the opposite picture, a man who walks into the gr- a group of people, the Ninevites, part of the Assyrian kingdom, 
part of the Assyrian Empire, an evil, evil, wicked, wicked empire as we've been talking about these past weeks. He walks into the midst of a people who are the enemy of his people, who will in 60 years take his people away and commit racial genocide and throw babies against rocks and do all sorts of other horrible things that are recorded in the scriptures and in extra-biblical literature. Um, he walks into the midst of a people he hates, so far the same, just the same as Orlando, but he does something completely different. Because of God's command to him and because of God's heart, he holds out the hope of repentance to them. Through what, through what is really a terrible, actually a terrible sermon, but that's sort of beside the point we talked about that last week, but Jonah comes into the midst of a people he hates, and instead of gunning them down, he, he holds out the hope of God's love for them. And, you know, I think if we've looked at the book enough to know that that wasn't what Jonah wanted to do. He wanted to run, and if he'd had his way, he probably, it probably would have looked more like Orlando. But God's heart and God's word compelled him to go into the midst of this people. And that's what I pray God's heart and God's word would compel us to do as well into the midst of a people that we maybe don't understand, maybe don't care about, which is a form of hatred, of icy hatred, um, into the midst of people that we hate, that are perhaps our enemies, that we think of as filthy sinners, and then realizing, wait, wait, we're all filthy sinners. I get to go. So I pray that that comes across clear this morning. Um, three points. So sort of... Sort of um, trying to get across to you that God's word proclaimed, I think we see this in this text, produces faith, brings repentance, and requires getting close. So God's word proclaimed produces faith, brings repentance, and requires getting close. Um, let's look at the power of God's word and how it does produce faith and repentance, first off. Um, what we see from this text right away is that only God's word proclaimed or preached produces faith and repentance. Nothing else does. We can't produce it. People themselves cannot produce their own faith in God and their own repentance. But God's word creates that. Um, verse 5 begins, and they believed. And they amened is, the, is the, how the Hebrew puts it. And they amened and they believed when Jonah preached. Um, God's word proclaimed produces faith. Um, it doesn't just say, and they believed um, and they believed God, which is what the ESV reads, I believe. So verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Actually, the Hebrew says this, and they believed in God. It's just a slight difference, but I think it's important. So they, and they believed God really means they believed what he said, and they did. They believed the word that Jonah brought to them. That He said, this is the word of the Lord, hear it. But the text actually says, and they believed in God. And when we preach the word of God to people in myriad ways throughout our lives, in our workplace, in uh, commercial interactions, in our homes, in our friendships, with those that perhaps misunderstand or even hate us, it can and often does produce not just a belief in God's word, but a belief in God himself. And those two are integrally Connected. The best way, I think we can glean from this text, and I think it's throughout Scripture, the best way to see people come to faith 
not just in a message, but in the living God and who he is and what he has done and what he is like. And to repent before him and to say, I'm yours. I'm not in charge. I've been living a rebel life. I believe that you are and that you have sent your son. The best way to see that happen is um, not to present what other people might call a apologetics of the faith, a faith defense. Here are the, the many reasons why Christianity is true. That's, that has its place and is useful. But it is to preach the gospel. Here's what's so wrong with our world. It's because of what's wrong with us. And here's what God has done through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only way to God the Father. And he holds his arms out to you as he did on the cross and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. All who desire, all who so desire, come to me. Come to my Father. I've made a way through my life and death and resurrection for you. Um, do you know the gospel so that you can proclaim it? I mean, all of us should sort of have like a, and I'm not talking about the gospel burp, as Os Guinness would call it, or the gospel blap. You know, we'll talk about that later. But um, to be in close in someone's life in such a way that at that moment when it's appropriate, you can actually speak a word of repentance, turn from your sin, and hope. There is someone to turn to. His name is Jesus Christ. He has made a way for you. Do you know how to articulate that gospel? Um, I would encourage you to, um, to even practice a short, a short version of the articulation of the gospel. I've, I've said it before, but I feel like the best way to think about it is not just to say Jesus loves you, which he does, um, but to sort of share the, the full narrative of Scripture and why we need Jesus in the first place, which is you think about the four points. Creation, that's where the Bible starts. God made everything good, and he made us for himself to know him. But we rebelled against his word. We disobeyed him. And when we disobeyed him, because we were put in charge over everything, everything cracked. Everything fell. So creation and then we rebelled, decreation. And decreation is where we find most of the scriptures. Most of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 all the way to the last prophet. We're in a state of decreation. Creation, decreation, and then recreation. Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, he came at the perfect time. And he didn't just come to save sinners. He did come to save sinners, thank God. But he came to make all things new. And I think that's part of the answer to the sort of enigmatic bit about the cows having sackcloth on them. I think part of what that tells us is that even this Ninevite king understood that when we live evil, when we rebel from God, when we displease him, it affects everything around us. It, it, our sin affects our environments, our family, our homes, our children, our wives, our husbands, our relationships, our work, everything. Even the cows. Even the cows. And what does Paul say? All creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption of the sons of men. So when Christ came, he began the process of the recreation of all things by laying his life down and by absorbing the curse into his own blood and marrow, into his very eternal soul. And he began the process of making all things right with God and all things new. And when we come to him in faith and trust in him and not our own ability to get right with God, that process of new creation 
takes hold in us and begins to grow and should affect everything that we touch. It's not just, hey, I'm saved for heaven. It's, I mean, God's bringing heaven down. He's going to remake all things. He's going to restore this good earth. He, he will never leave that which he began. He will never forsake his good creation. He said in the beginning, it is good. And like Augustine said, um, nothing that is good will not remain. Nothing that is good will not remain. Jesus came to make all things new, and he makes us emissaries of that. And that's what Jonah was here. And we see this tremendous response. You know, St. Francis of Assisi, I think it's falsely attributed to him. Um, we probably all quoted it. I have um, go out into all the world and, and preach the gospel, and if you must, use words. First of all, I don't think he said that. I'm not sure about that one. But secondly, that's not good. It's catchy and it's nice and it conveys a great truth. But taken as a whole, it's not a good rule to live by. And we see that here in this text. There has to be gospel proclamation. There has to be gospel articulation. We have to tell people, here is what the gospel is. Hey, and we have to live it. That is absolutely true. Whether it was St. Francis or someone else. As Jeremiah, I think, said a few Sundays ago when he was anchoring all of a sudden, I forgot what he said. Somebody knows it. But it was something about how our lives are like a living letter, or ought to be, of the gospel. We, are in, we ought to be incarnations of the gospel. But also, if our lives are that, our words ought to be that too. And people need to hear. And, it, and you know, again, we're not looking for a gospel burp, like four spiritual laws, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm going to go. You know, I mean... It has to be in relationship most of the time, not always. I mean, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, what did he say? He said, what must I do to be saved? Paul, didn't, Paul wasn't like, wait a minute, we, we're not in relationship. I, I need to, let's go have some coffee first. Let's develop. He, the homeboy was ready, and he'd seen enough from Paul's suffering and those prisoners suffering in jail. He was ready. What do I have to do to be saved? And Paul said, what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your whole household shall be saved. So there is a time for that, and we need to be ready when there is. But we, most of what we're going to see is people scratching their chins in this, in this um, um, not pessimistic, it's not the word, skeptical is the word I'm looking for. It was running away from me. In this skeptical world, in this skeptical culture that we live in, we need to be incarnations of the gospel and to live it out. And that's one of the reasons we're structured the way that we are, aside from the fact that we believe it's biblical. Um, but there's freedom there in, that, in the way that churches are structured. So we, it's very incarnational. It's, it's low, I think, um, um, uh, see, we're, I'm losing words today, not a good thing. Um, Low-key, intentional, relational, incarnational. That's the way that we're set up so that we can be in places as a family of God and just fold neighbors in. That's, that's what we want to see. Uh, we're not a commuter church. We... we we, if you live 30 minutes away and are busting it in, God bless you. We would really encourage you, in the freedom that you have in Christ, keep coming here if you want to. But go find a church close that you can live in that area, hopefully work in that area, be a neighbor, um, be salt and light to your neighbors, and, and see them one to Christ that way. So not so much going on a mission trip, but again, as I said last week, being on mission where God has planted us here 52 weeks a year. Okay, none of that was really in the notes. 
It's all right. I kind of had a feeling it was going to be a strange morning. It's all good. Um, why do these guys, let's, let's, let's move on. That, that's the power of God's word to produce faith and repentance. Let's move on briefly to what repentance looks like. We've talked about it some, but um, they all, they fast, which means they go without food, they go without eating, and they dress in sackcloth from the greatest to the least, the text tells us. Um, why? They're foregoing the normal creature comforts. They're afflicting themselves with pain, as it were, to say, look, we are in the wrong. We're not just going to keep living life in a normal way as if we think things are normal. We've heard the word of God, and we are in the wrong, and this is a way of saying more than just with our words, we're sorry. We deserve worse than this, worse than we're inflicting on ourselves. Would you have mercy, God? So it's a way of saying, look, it's a way of saying this. We will not live another day. We will not make it if we do not get the undeserved favor of the living God. I think fasting also says that in that it is not doing something. Fasting isn't doing something. I think prayer is so important and even the act, in, even faith itself in this way too. They're all sort of ways of, they're, they're like anti-doing somethings. So fasting is actually not doing something. It's not eating. One of those basic things of life. And so it's a, it's a way of saying um, if, if change is going to happen, we're careening toward judgment, the just judgment of God. If our path is going to change, it has to be something not that we do, but that God does. And so it's a crying out to him in that sense. And that is really at the heart of the gospel, that realizing that we could not save ourselves, Jesus, whose name means, Yeshua, means God saves. Not we say, not God saves mostly, and then we come in and believe and, and, and finish that work. No. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. God has done everything necessary in Christ to make a way for us to not just be at peace with him, but as Chris said, in our confession time, to be adopted as his sons and daughters with all the rights thereunto. Every pleasure God has in his own son, Jesus, we have if we've trusted in Christ. We've been brought into that pleasure. Every bit of sinlessness and purity that Christ has, you have. His, his cloak of righteousness, you have. His inheritance, you have if you are in Christ. But it's all something that only God can do and has done. Nothing that we can do. Um, and so it's a way of saying, look, I realize if this relationship is going to be repaired, it cannot come from my end. It can't come from something that I've done. Um, think about, you know, a husband who's unfaithful to his wife. There is nothing, you can't bring enough flowers. Enough time cannot go by for you to make it right. You, the ball's not in your court, pal. Guess what? If it's going to be made right, it's the one who has been wronged that has the power to say, look, I forgive you. You wronged me. And the Bible is very clear. When we sin, we wrong God. What does David say in Psalm 51, this strange verse? Against you and you only have I sinned. What? He's just killed his best friend and slept with his wife, with the best friend's wife, not his own wife. 
He's wronged two people big time, but he says, against you only have I sinned. When we sin, our first and chief offense is to God, against God, which is why Jesus, when he's here, he says to various people, and he offends the religious leaders, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. Translation, everything you've done against other people in ways that you've wronged them, you've been wronging me. The Bible through Hosea, Jeremiah, other prophets also makes very clear our sin is not just, it's not just forensic. It's not just a courtroom offense. It's not just a civil offense to God. It's personal. He made us to be in love relationship with him. And the closest picture we have of that is marriage here on earth. And when we sin, the whole book of Hosea is dedicated to the idea that when we sin, we commit adultery against God. For things to be made right, he has to make them right. And he doesn't, he's not obliged, but he did. And that's the gospel. So fasting, I think, is an expression of that. And another thing we see in verse 6 is not only do the people do this, but the people do this because the king, when they get Jonah's message, his terrible sermon, in verse 6 we see the king steps off his throne. There was nobody more powerful, nobody that had more power unto himself than the ancient Near Eastern despot, potentate, king. If you crossed him, he could just take your head off, especially in Assyria. And nobody is more favored of the gods in this culture than the king. If you're king, if you're head honcho, it means the gods are smiling on you. If you got the power, then you got the pleasure of the gods. That's just the way their theology worked. It's also the way, I'm not just dumping on the Assyrians. I mean, it's the way that ancient Near Eastern theology, even in Israel, worked through a misunderstanding. Like You see the, you see the disciples of Jesus, and they, uh, they pass a blind guy. And what's their question to Jesus? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? What? The only reason we have a different response is because of Jesus, because of the way that he responded and because of what he did. He set that straight and he said, no, none of those things. Not A or B. It's so that God would be glorified. That man wasn't born that way because of something he did wrong, necessarily. But go and repent, lest the same thing happen to you, as he says in other texts. So we all deserve that. But God in his mercy um, gives us more than we deserve a lot of times, always. So the reverse of that being the king's on the top, so he must be pleasing to God. Well, this king realizes, hey, this is for all of us. We're all in the wrong. And he gets down in the dust, and he puts on that sackcloth, and he fasts, and he calls for a full fast for every single person. Even throws, again, sackcloth on the cattle. Would that we had a leader who modeled that kind of national repentance today for us? Would we pray for and vote for those kinds of leaders? But thank God that we do have that kind of leader who is the true king, regardless of the powers that be, and his name is Jesus. And what a neat picture, what a beautiful, small picture this is of the much greater king who rules over everything, who created everything with words, spoke and it became who had all power, who could have destroyed us for rebelling against him, he was well within his rights to do so and to start over or just to be within the council of his trinity forever content. But he stepped down 
Paul tells us and others tell us and we see in the Gospels. At the perfect time, because of the counsels that he had within the Godhead, with Father, with the Holy Spirit, he said, I will go. That's the plan. Only, only I can save man and woman. Only I can restore creation. They screwed it up so bad. They've run so far away. Their hearts are so dark. And so he stepped into darkness. A world that he created that was light and that was in perfect relationship with him had become black and dark. And he stepped into that. He left Philippians 2, right? He left his father's throne. And he left his privileges behind. And he was born to a couple parents that were so poor that he was put in a feed trough, an animal feed trough, his first night on the earth, wrapped in rags. And on the eighth day, when his parents brought a sacrifice to the temple for him to be circumcised, they brought the poor person's sacrifice as prescribed in the law. Um, a couple birds. He was born to a poor family, and he chose it to be so. And he lived a life of poverty, didn't even have a home, didn't even have a bed to lay his head on. And he died a criminal's death. And worse, he became our sin. He, he took the wrath of God, poured out justly against our sins upon himself, finished it. It's been paid for so that we who come to him can be completely forgiven. He did the ultimate step down. He went all the way down to hell for us. That's such as the humility of God, such as the love of God for us, for sinners. Um, yesterday was a scary day for my family. Um, sorry, I'm going to leave you on that cliffhanger for a second. My wife hates when I do this. Water break. Wet the old whistle. Okay. Um, my wife's like, come on, I'm waiting on pins and needles. Let's go. Tell me. Um, it was a bad, it was a, it was almost a bad day. It was a very good day though, because it was a close call. Our daughter, Susanna is almost two and she loves the pool and she wears floaties. And yesterday we just hadn't gotten our floaties on yet. And we turned our backs and she was in the water and, uh, all we could see was the top of her head. And we didn't know how long she'd been there. And so Robin jumped in. I was, I was cleaning the pool. And uh, across the way, and Robin jumped in and grabbed her. And she spit out some water and cried for a while and didn't want to get back in. But we made her. And oh, It was almost a really bad day, but it was a great day. Um, because everything just becomes clearer, doesn't it? When something like that happens, um, you... You see what's important again, and uh, you see God's mercy. And I just couldn't help but think about how the father not only watched as his son drowned because of our sin, drowned in our sin and our rebellion on that cross but then poured out his wrath not because he was angry with his son he loved his son in love for us 
he poured out his wrath, a sea of furious wrath against us on his son, his precious son. And Susanna was saved, but Jesus died. He breathed his last, and they poked his side, and blood and water came out separated. He was medically dead and buried. But that's not the end of the story. Because he rose. And when he rose, Paul tells us at the end of Romans 4, and we learn elsewhere that what that meant, among other things, is that God the Father had said, your death was sufficient payment. Death no longer has any dominion. Not over you, it never did have dominion over Jesus. Jesus represents all who will trust in him. Death no longer has dominion over us, which means sin, which is the consequence of death, no longer has dominion over us, which is the reason for death, sorry. So when Jesus rose, it was God's way of saying, payment fulfilled. Anyone who comes to Christ shall live as Christ lives and shall die to sin in Christ by faith. Guys, if we get that, to the degree that penny drops in our hearts, we're not going to look at gay bars. We're not going to look at Muslim, radical Muslims. We're not going to look at those who don't know Jesus in a whole host of ways as anything other than sinners like me. Yeah. And what did, what did, what did God do for me? What did, what did, let's look at our text. What did God call Jonah to? There's this, in verse 4, there's this, it's a really interesting word. It's not interesting at all in the English. But it is in the original text. It says, um, and Jonah began to go into the city, or Jonah began to enter the city to preach the word, right? Well, that word began is really weird in the Hebrew. It actually means this. Check this out. That word began actually means to profane or defile oneself. So literally translated, and this is why it's not translated that way, because it's just weird. And Jonah defiled himself going into that city. And if you read the Old Testament law, it makes perfect sense. That kind of proximity to that sort of wicked people, uh, man, it was easy to pick up their stuff. And God called a people to be holy for himself, and they were to drive the wicked away from themselves, that they might be a picture of holiness and separation and purity, worshiping the one true God for all the world to see. But God called Jonah to profane himself, as it were, to defile himself, to go into this city. And you know, if you fast forward, um, you fast forward to the Gospels, our Lord comes, and there's a sense in which that's the very thing he does, although he's never tainted by our sin, but he, as it were, profaned himself to come into our midst, to get close, real close. So close eventually that he took our sin upon himself. You can't get closer. But there's this scene in, uh, at the end of Matthew 7. So he preaches the best sermon ever recorded. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, three chapters. And Matthew has gone to all this trouble. And after this I close, don't worry. But stay with me. Matthew goes to all this trouble in the first five chapters to set up Matthew as a second exodus. 
Jesus is the second or better than Moses that Moses predicted, prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. This is one of the many things Matthew is doing. And we're going to be preaching through Matthew starting Advent all the way through Epiphany. So for about 16 weeks this, this coming year. So I'm excited about that and we'll get more of that. You'll get a fuller picture of that. But start when Jesus walks up the mountain to preach the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, and to anyone who will gather around, his followers. Matthew is already clearly, for any Jew reading, and he wrote primarily for Jewish believers. So they would have been familiar with what he was doing. He's setting up Jesus as the greater than Moses. And I'm not going to go into all that, but the point is, in Exodus, when Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law, nobody can touch that mountain, because God is on it. You can't come to God any way you choose. And if you do, you will die. Anyone that gets too close, any animal that gets too close will die. Moses, you have my permission. By my word, you come. You're the mediator. Moses comes in fear and trembling, and he receives God's word, and then he gives God's word. What does Jesus, as the second Moses, do? He walks up the mountain, and everyone just follows him. Super accessible. And then he opens his mouth, and they sit at his feet. They're not at the bottom of the mountain. They're with him. They're with Jesus on the mountain. And he opens his mouth as the second Moses. And rather than receiving the law from God, he just opens his mouth, and he gives it. What is Matthew saying about Jesus? He's saying Jesus is the God of Sinai, made accessible. How? Because of what he's going to go do on the cross. And what is the one thing that Jesus does, pop quiz, Right after the sermon, when he finishes with the whole, what does he finish with, right? It's, this is everything I've said. If you pay attention to it, you're like a house built on the rock. And if you don't, you're going to be swept away. First verse, chapter 8 of Matthew. The very next thing that happens when he starts coming down from the mountain, a leper approaches him. Ceremonially unclean. You don't touch. Clean people do not touch, according to the law. Do not touch lepers. What does Jesus do? Leper comes up and has the audacity to say, Heal me. Jesus could have said, you're healed. Easily. He created everything. He healed people with the word all the time. What does Jesus do? He reaches out and he touches him. He touches him. Jesus got dirty so we could get clean. He got dirty. He entered our filth and he made us clean with his cleanness and with his righteousness. And you know what he does? He calls us to do that same thing. He calls us to incarnate the gospel by going into the dirtiest, the heaviest, the grimiest, the most sin-ridden, broken, evil places in our communities. Not because we're great, but because we're sinners who have been saved and made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is more powerful than any darkness. And that will push back and conquer any darkness. The more we get what Jesus has done for us, the more we will go into these places and get close and enter the mess of each other, of our friends. No, platitudes are fading. Pretense, fading. The mask that I put on every, every day coming down a little more as we enter each other's mess. Because guess what? I've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Let's get honest. Let's get messy so that we can get clean together, so we can point each other to Jesus and experience him together and his purification and his unending love. You know, 
what does Keller always say? More, the gospel tells us that we're more wicked than we can possibly imagine and more deeply love than we ever dared hope. That's it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for being the father that all fathers and all families come from. Um, I thank you for your loving heart. I pray that you would make ours more like yours. Thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, who offered himself as the only necessary and perfect sacrifice, the go-between between us and you. And he's making all things new. Lord, would we come to him now? Would we abide in him forever? Would you draw other people to yourself for your glory and the good of our hearts and this Galleria area, this city, and this world? We love you, Lord. Come quickly. Amen.